Who is Torsten Wagner? He is a scholar of German and Danish descent who has devoted his adult life to studying Jewish Germany, the Holocaust, and the Danish rescue of Jews during World War II. He has been an associate professor of modern European history at the Danish Institute for Study Abroad, and he's been affiliated with, the, which is affiliated with the University of Copenhagen, and he has served as an academic director of FASB, Fellowships at Auschwitz for the Study of Professional Ethics since 2015. That will be a focus of our discussion today. He has numerous academic publications in the field of modern German and European Jewish history, anti-Semitism, Holocaust studies, cultures of memory in Israeli history and society. Um, he lives with his wife and two children in Copenhagen and Berlin. We haven't even asked about your wife and two children. I don't know if that should come up tonight, today or tonight. What do you want? I can ask you tonight. Come back tonight to hear some fascinating personal stuff before he leaves. Um, I've skipped some of the other stuff just for time, but please join me in welcoming Torsten Wagner back to uh, Congregation Shir Hamalev. Thank you, Ari. So, uh, as we started yesterday, uh, I had a chance to explain how, to a certain degree, of course, I'm trying to weave together the topics of these three lectures, discussions uh, together. And today I was planning on talking with you a little bit about the development um, of Holocaust education. Uh, in many ways, you could also say that, of course, we are talking about an area where three different things overlap. Um, it's both the way that we've been talking about the Holocaust over the last couple of decades. It's the way uh, that we've been studying the scholarship that is going on. And the third area, if you want, is the actual way of teaching it, right? And of course, these three things, and probably others too, are overlapping and interacting with each other to degree, right? And that's, of course, something that we'll um, come back to. If we start out looking back how um, America, how Europe has been dealing with that civilizational uh, rupture uh, that the Shoah meant, what always surprises me again and again is um, how long time it took before it actually became a topic uh, in broader parts of these societies in very different ways. Um, when did the first survivor um, texts actually become printed and distributed? Just think of uh, the famous, famous book of uh, Primo Levi, uh, If This Is a Man, that he writes in 1947, uh, but it uh, not only takes a decade before it actually uh, ends up being um, published in English, and then also in a very small um, edition, and for a long time is not read very much, or think of the first scholarship that is coming out. Some of you might be familiar with uh, the massive volume of uh, Raoul Hilberg's uh, The Destruction of European Jews, uh, which is his dissertation, and it takes years before he, he gets it published. I think it comes out in 61 eventually, um, but that's a hard struggle, and it only is published in German in 82 for its very specific reasons. But my whole point is that even in terms of uh, survivor testimonies and also in terms of scholarship, it takes decades before that actually becomes integrated into a broader discussion, both in America and also in, uh, in Western Europe. Um, on the other hand, of course, if we look um, at the development over these decades, I think that most of the students that I'm working with, the fellows of the program that I'll introduce you to in a moment, uh, FASB, um, Fellowships uh, at Auschwitz for the Study of Professional Ethics, and I'll try to explain that weird name a little bit later. Um, my experience again and again is the, that there's a perception of how much people who live 
in the West, see how the Holocaust has become almost something like a, what has been called a ruling symbol in our culture. So to a certain degree, it's omnipresent in terms of people all the time referring to it. Right? And of course, also said very often referring to the Holocaust coming from very different angles. So they'll talk about their own suffering, or they'll talk about the mistreatment of animals, and then they refer to the Holocaust. Right? So there's almost this inflationary uh, use. So you can see how we come from a uh, period of silence and reluctance to deal with it, um, to through a lot of different steps that I'm not going to bore you with right now, to a situation perhaps since the 80s, 90s, and definitely into our uh, era, where there's this omnipresence and, and that's an important punchline for me, also a very problematic instrumentalization uh, of the Holocaust. If we look around, we can definitely see how um, the Holocaust very often is being used to strengthen almost every argument um, that we want to make uh, to kind of uh, bolster our own political, social, cultural uh, position that we care to argue. Um, and that's, of course, deeply problematic if we think about it, right? That the Holocaust will be turned into all kinds of contexts um, where we try to extract meaning from it and bolster our own agenda. We had the agenda anyway, and the Holocaust comes in handy to reinforce that agenda, right? And we can see that, of course, in very different contexts. And that makes people that I'm trying to talk with and engage and involve very skeptical. And they say, really, Auschwitz again, right? Um, there's this sense of, of being saturated, the sense of um, a constant bombardment of that uh, topic. Part of that problem is, of course, um, that there's a significant decontextualization and universalization uh, that is happening. I'll give you one example. Um, I just assume that most of you will be familiar with the diary of Anne Frank, kind of a, a classic that people started to read 50, 60 years ago, right, in a, in a broader context. But if we nowadays will have, for example, in Amsterdam, we'll have a monument that says, uh, commemorating Anne Frank, um, I think it's actually in London, the one that I'm thinking of, but it doesn't matter, right? When you in Europe have a memorial where it says commemorating Anne Frank, uh, commemorating all the children that died in wars. Right? That's of course very touching and important and it's horrible that so many children die in wars, but with all due respect, that's not what Anne Frank is about, right? She doesn't die in a war. Right? And she's not a child. Right? She's, she's persecuted as a Jewish girl and murdered by systematic uh, racial anti-Semitic policy by Germans and their allies. Right? So uh, very often universalization, as well-intended as it sometimes might be, also creates new pitfalls and problems, of course, in that uh, context. I would still argue, though, that if we resist the temptation of making the Holocaust manageable and kind of useful for our purposes, but actually somehow sincerely try to, in a both in a literal and in a metaphorical sense, to, to face Auschwitz, to confront the Holocaust, it raises some very unsettling questions about humanity that are deeply relevant also for the 21st century. Um, and that, especially also, and I'll just kind of put the quote up, it seems tiny for you here, but I will, I'll read it to you, um, also in terms of a quote by Matthias Heil, a colleague of mine who um, had such a, a beautiful, um, coined such a beautiful sentence, um, Auschwitz meant the collapse of all faith and the capacity of civilized society 
to instill humane values. So in many ways, you could argue, you just have to believe me that that's what it says up there. Uh, but the, the point here is, of course, it's so problematic if we try to turn the Holocaust into this um, lesson, so to speak, when actually, arguably, Auschwitz and the Holocaust is the absence of that, right? Is this kind of complete collapse uh, of meaning uh, in any way. People who have tried to, to struggle uh, with how to go ahead and um, deal with the Holocaust for our society and also think about uh, what kind of ethical and broader implications it has for our time um, are often and have been for decades disturbed by one very simple observation, and that is that the perpetrators, um, the ones that actually committed and organized these very often abnormal crimes, will be surprising, were surprisingly normal people, and that these people very often perceived of themselves as good people, as people who are doing the right thing. And that irritation, that disturbance and irritation is what I want to talk with you uh, about uh, today. A classical example is Richard Breitman, who writes the first biography of, um, of Heinrich um, Himmler. Um, finishes his, I think, 600-page biography by writing, the architect of mass murder remained in his own eyes a moralist to the end and thought of himself as a good guy, right? as somebody who has done the world a uh, favor. So there's increasingly an awareness that to try to wrap our minds around the Holocaust and why this happens, um, that Nazism and the Holocaust is not necessarily about the absence of ethics, which is an easy temptation to go into, right? That we know of societies that have different kind of ethical systems, and Nazism is this black hole where there's nothing, but that actually um, the leaders, the perpetrators, but also big parts of German society actually had a system of ethics. And that's the stretch that I'm going to invite you to try to at least play with and, and, and deal with um, for a moment. What does that mean? And especially then also what does it mean for how we deal with it today in terms of education uh, and implications um, of this. Again and again, I mean, for example, uh, the SS would have um, as a, their motto, uh, uh, my uh, honor is faithfulness or uh, is loyalty. Uh, and there are many references to ethical values in Nazi terminology uh, and ideology. So the basic question then, what it boils down to, is of course, what role did ethical norms and values play in the preparation and also, also legitimization of persecution, violence, and mass murder? And what I'm going to do now, especially in a synagogue is a little bit of a, a um, uh, experiment or, or a crazy uh, thing, because what I would like you to, in, to invite you to is to, with me, to listen to one of the worst uh, mass murderers in human history and how he argues his case. I'd like with you to listen to Heinrich Himmler for five minutes and with me just to try to think about what kind of ethical system
can we see in that clip? Um, do we all know who Heinrich Himmler is? Do we have a vague idea of the person? He's the head of the SS and eventually also the whole police apparatus of Nazi Germany. Um, Eichmann, that I assume that everybody knows in the room, uh, was uh, one of his employees. Right? Uh, so we have uh, Himmler and Heydrich, uh, Heinrich Himmler and, and uh, Reinhard Heydrich as the top leaders of the whole Reich Security Main Office in the Nazi state who also are in charge of running the, uh, the death camps and big parts of the concentration system. Uh, and Eichmann then is the assistant to Heydrich, right? So the person we know is much further down on the totem pole and Himmler and Heydrich are the key figures in that context. And I ask you for, for, for that license, for that permission to, to try to focus on what Himmler brings in. I'm gonna play a, a short clip to you in German, obviously. Uh, recording from a Himmler speech that he gives on, uh, on October 6th, for, sorry, 4th, uh, 1943. Um, and he gives it to a room full of high-ranking SS officers, 92 SS officers. The irony is that Himmler was so convinced of his own grandeur uh, that he actually had a lot of his speeches recorded on wax um, plates, master plates. Uh, so we have hundreds of those, and also many of them uh, we have as manuscripts, right? So we actually quite have a lot of material uh, there. Um, perhaps we should also for a moment before we listen to that, um, think about what situation Europe is in in October 1943. This is of course a situation where already um, the Holocaust, sorry, World War II is beyond its turning. What, what would you t typically consider the main turning point of World War II, I guess Americans would typically say December 7th, 1941, right? With Pearl Harbor, but for a, in, a, in a broader... Stalingrad? Stalingrad, probably, right? So with that, we are uh, in January 1943, right? Late 42, early 43. So this is half a year later. This is after the Americans um, and some English troops have uh, invaded Sicily and Italy, right? So half of Italy has been liberated already. Um, Stalin has, to some degree, already pushed back and reconquered some of the territories in the east. Yes, right? But still, a lot of Europe is under um, Nazi control. Uh, let there be no doubt about it. And as you will notice, one aspect is also important. That, of course, means that many of the mass graves of earlier um, mass executions are before the Red Army or other armies liberate these areas, then will be identified, reopened, and the bodies are burnt. Right? So that's, of course, part of that whole um, period that we're looking at in 1943. So what you will see is this recording and a speech that's given in the city hall of Posen, a German city that today is uh, Poznan right, in Poland, but then back then a German city. Um, and um, let's just listen to it and try to focus mainly, as I said, on this aspect of um, a sense of, of ethical norms that you will uh, find in this recording. That what we are in our Rüstungsbetrieben leisten wird, when we auch am Schluss des Krieges aufrechnen können, starten können, eine sehenswerte und beachtliche Leistung sein. Ich will auch 
ein ganz schweres Kapitel. Will ich hier vor Ihnen alle Offenheit nennen. Es soll zwischen uns ausgesprochen sein, und trotzdem werden wir nicht in der Öffentlichkeit nie darüber reden. Genauso wenig, wie wir am 30. Juni gezögert haben, die befohlene Pflicht zu tun und Kameraden, die sich verfehlt hatten, an die Wand zu stellen und zu erschießen. Wie wir darüber niemals gesprochen haben und sprechen werden. Das war so eine Gott sei Dank in uns wohnende Takt, Selbstverständlichkeit des Taktes, dass wir uns untereinander nie darüber unterhalten haben, nie darüber sprachen. Es hat jeden geschaut, und jeder war sich klar, dass es das nächste Mal wieder tun würde, wenn es befohlen wird und wenn es notwendig ist. Ich meine, die Judenevakuierung, die Ausrottung des jüdischen Volkes. Es gehört zu den Dingen, die man leicht ausspricht. Das jüdische Volk wird ausgerottet. Das fasst Ihnen jeder Parteigenosse. Ganz klar steht in unserem Programm drin. Ausschaltung der Juden, Ausrottung machen wir fast Gleichigkeit. Und dann kommen Sie alle, alle die braven 80 Millionen Deutschen, jeder hat seinen anständigen Juden, sagt, alle anderen sind Schweine. Der ist ein prima Jude. Und zugesehen, es durchgestanden hat keiner. Von euch werden die meisten wissen, was es heißt, wenn 100 Leichen beisammen liegen. Wenn 500 da liegen oder wenn 1000 da liegen. Und bis durchgehalten zu haben und dabei, abgesehen von menschlichen Ausnahmeschwächen, anständig geblieben zu sein, hat uns hart gemacht und ist ein niemals genanntes und niemals zu nennendes Ruhmesblatt. Denn wir wissen, wie schwer wir uns täten, wenn wir heute noch in jeder Stadt bei den Bombenangriffen, bei den Lasten des Krieges und bei den Entbehrungen, wenn wir da noch die Juden als geheime Saboteure, Alligatoren und Hetzer hätten. Wir würden wahrscheinlich in das Stadium des Jahres 1617 jetzt gekommen sein, wenn die Juden noch im deutschen Volkskörper täten. haben wir ihnen abgenommen und ich habe einen strikten Befehl gegeben, den Oberbruchsrapol durchgeführt hat. Wir haben diese Reichtümer rechtlos dem Reich, dem Staat abgeführt. Wir haben uns nichts davon genommen. Einzelne, die sich verfehlt haben, die werden gemäß einem von mir gegebenen Befehl den ich am Anfang gab, wer sich auch nur eine Mark davon nimmt, ist des Todes. Eine Anzahl der Ex-Männer haben sich dagegen verfehlt, sind nicht sehr viele. Und sie werden des Todes sein. Gnadelos! Wir haben das moralische Recht. Wir hatten die Pflicht, unserem Volk gegenüber das zu tun. 
dieses Volk auf uns umbringen wollte, umzubringen. Wir haben aber nicht das Recht, uns auch nur mit einem Feld, mit einer Mark, mit einer Zigarette, mit einer Uhr, mit sonst etwas zu bereichern. Das haben wir nicht. Denn wir wollen nicht am Schluss, weil wir den Bacillus ausrotten, an den Bacillus krank werden und sterben. Da werde ich niemals zusehen, dass so etwas überhaupt nur auch eine kleine Vollenstelle bei uns eintritt und sich festsetzt, sondern wo sich eine festsetzen sollte, werden wir sie gemeinsam ausbrennen. Insgesamt aber können wir sagen, wir haben diese schwerste Aufgabe in Liebe zu unserem Volk getan. Und wir haben keinen Schaden in unserem Innern, in unserer Seele, in unserem Charakter daran genommen. So, let's just make sure that we don't get the next one here. Any comments? Was there a particular, a particular thing that surprised you or that you wanted, would like to ask about? Uh, you should start with that. I agree completely. Just keep in mind that, of course, at that point of time, we're talking about European Jewry, right? So, of course, they're not all loyal to Germany, basically, but, but that, that even makes your point stronger, right? So, yes. So, Himmler's concept of ethical behavior was not to benefit in any way from any of the personal effects of Jews that were killed. Correct? Never mind the first thought that thou shalt not murder. That, that, that concept is never addressed in this speech. Or is it addressed because we only heard a portion of it? Well, the, I think the speech is two hours, so I'm not sure that yeah, you have no, the patience for that. Well, no, no, I, but, I thought uh, maybe yeah. you personally have yeah. listened to the entire thing. Yeah, well, I have. But, but, but I can what, relate what to it a little less. What an inverted concept of ethical behavior, and I don't think that that was true either. Look at the paintings that were taken. They, they did benefit. Yeah. They benefited greatly. Yeah. So, um, you touched on at least two different points, right? And the aspect of the change of ethical norms is something I really would like to get back to in a moment. So, let's just shelve that as a key moment, for, uh, a key aspect for a moment. The other element is, of course, the fact that he says that is why we don't want any kind of uh, robbery, any kind of stealing, and so on. In the few cases where it has happened, we've been clamping down on it mercilessly. That's, of course, a fiction, 
right? I mean, the, 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 just one second. That's, of course, a fiction. The reality is, of course, uh, and scholars more now than 20 years ago have emphasized how the Holocaust also was one of the lar largest mass robberies in world history, right? So that has nothing to do with the reality. Um, but it has a great significance for your first point, and that is the system of ethics, which we'll get back to. But let me first hear a few more. Do we take a few more voices? Yeah? So it's clear how he's presenting his case, which I find fascinating, which is preservation of the German people. It's loyalty to our people, and the Jews, he notes, have two threats to our people. One shown in World War I, they're a fifth column. They're not loyal, they would undermine us because they are disloyal. And second, though he doesn't say directly, is that they are greedy. Yeah. And that's the word of bacillus. Yeah. That's their kind of bacillus, shouldn't be ours by taking. And so the morality is our people's preservation is essential. These people are here as outsiders who are morally repugnant and dangerous. I don't know first to start here from the front. Where would the uh, loot have supposed to go to? Where would it supposedly have gone to, theoretically? Where would it have gone to? The loot that they took to the Jews. Oh, yeah. Where would it have supposedly gone to? The, the norm, the, the, the legal ramifications were that everything, I mean, you can see it that when even when you go through the museum uh, at Auschwitz, it says this is where um, uh, the property, the gold, whatever was taken uh, from, and uh, the luggage, or even from the individuals that were either murdered or went into the, the camp as, as prisoners, and then it was sent to the National Bank in Berlin, right, to the Reichsbank. So basically the property was made, uh, was taken and then brought to uh, the Reichsbank, and then for, I mean, if we talk about fur coats or furniture or whatever, it was auctioned away, right, or given away at very cheap rates for the Germans. It's not a long time ago that a photo series from Hanau in central western Germany was brought out where you actually can see, I think it's 50, 60 photos from the day of the deportation of the Hanau Jews. And for, for a long time, we only had a few pictures of how they are walked through the city and brought to the trains and deported. But if you look at the whole series, the second half of the series documents how then the population of Hanau uh, gathered um, to get the apartments and the furniture and the furs and so on. Right? So that redistribution already happens in the moment of deportation. Uh, and in other contexts, when it's taken from Jews in other parts of Europe, it will then be nationalized and given out by the German state. That is the theory. The reality is, of course, that the perpetrators, the Germans or the Allies, wherever they were, uh, would, of course, also rob and take things for themselves and bring it back to, uh, to Germany. So there was the, um, the legal and the de facto level of it. Harry. What I found interesting in the ethical discussion was the not shying away from the mass murder, but the um, Focusing on it, saying what made Germans great is that they had to do this, which the implicit thing is that murder is bad, but that it didn't affect their ethics and the way they would deal with other people in society. And so it was a very interesting play on 
that, that even though they had to do the murder thing, they still could remain upright citizens. So in other words, what I would like to hear in what you're saying uh, is that there's a different system of ethics operating here, one that is not immediately recognizable for us, uh, or that we might not even think of as ethics, but arguably are ethical categories because of these two elements that you just talked about. Yeah? It sounded to me But they didn't talk about it, he said, we can't mention it. Yeah, that's a misunderstanding. Can I clarify the misunderstanding? It's, it, takes, it's, it takes a little bit of background uh, knowledge. It's a very implicit reference. What he talks about in that one moment um, is we will deal with this with the amount of tact that we already have shown in a different situation, he says. And what he then talks about is June 30th, 1934. That is the light of the night of the long knives. That's the moment when the SS is used to kill and replace the leadership of the SA. The stormtroopers, the brown shirts, right? The SS originally was a tiny unit within the SA, and Hitler feels endangered and threatened by Röhm, who was the head of the SA, and has Röhm's subordinate, Himmler, kill his boss. And then the SS becomes not only independent, but over the next few years grows into this monster organization of security, murder, suppression, concentration camps. Right? But that is what he's talking about. And it's a dangerous misunderstanding here, because the fact is, and again, again, have to emphasize that even with my students and in other contexts, we have not one evidence, piece of evidence in these many, many court cases that we have that somehow have to do with Holocaust murder and Holocaust perpetrators. We don't have one case where a person in a German uniform that refused to kill in the context of the Holocaust had any kind of draconian punishment like camp or shooting or being shot or anything like that. So what becomes the big dominating lie of Germans, what they tell themselves after 45, we couldn't have done anything else because otherwise I would have been shot has nothing to do with reality. Right? So that's why it's important to clarify that misunderstanding. Because again, again, I meet so often people who said, well, there must have been Germans who only were willing to do that because they had a gun to the head. And that's a big misunderstanding. I think part of the way that they worked an alternative kind of ethic was in dehumanizing the Jews. They weren't people. And, and you can tell that by some of the language. Exterminate. Well, you exterminate rats, not people. Extremely important. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, draw a distinction between Ausrottung and Vernichtung. Here he says Ausrottung, which yeah. in my mind is you know, even worse. Yeah. Vernichtung is broader, and Ausrottung has this clear biological category, right? Yeah. yeah. I think what you're seeing. I think what you're seeing is that this, this is a recognition by the German leaders, the Nazis, that we cannot replace the ethical system that is in existence. It's already there. So what we have to do is embrace it 
and say, but this is an exception to our ethical system. It doesn't fall outside. You are still just as ethical as you always were. We still have the same values we always have. But this is an exception, and this is why this is an exception. And you have, and because it's an exception, it's hard for you to do. But you're all the more courageous and moral and noble because you're able to deal with this exception. But it's, there's a recognition that the moral system that existed could not be replaced. Could I comment on that? Because I would like, do you have some, a different point or a comment on that? Yeah, okay. I'm hearing what it sounds like a conflation of ethical systems. Uh, to this day, if you study ethical theory, they'll talk about jus and bella, right? Justice for versus justice in society. And that there's actually different ethical systems and different ethical standards based on a context, right? There are ethicists who spend their whole time talking about what is ethical within the context of war. Um, and what I heard was a conflation of those systems. Uh, so, and I know perhaps you're going to comment more on yeah, this. Yeah. I think these are different attempts to come to terms with the tension that is in there in between what we would think of as, a, as the pre-existing ethical nor, uh, system, normative system uh, and then what Himmler presents here or that kind of um, conflation that you mentioned now. And one third way of thinking about that that might help us move on uh, is of course to use those scholars here to understand this who say there is a difference between, there's a spectrum of understanding ethics ranging from one end that is universal ethics and the other end that is uh, particularist ethics. So universal ethics would be a universal system where our starting point is that in one way or the other it's relevant for all human beings. While particularist, let me just make the point really quick, while particularist ethics uh, says it actually doesn't matter if other nations and other people understand what we're doing right now or not, we know in our understanding of what is right and wrong that it's the right thing to do, and you can fail it, you can steal, and you are breaking the norms, right? But there, it, it, it's the right thing to do to be part of um, this murder. Obviously, they would not use that term, right? Um, but that's the idea, and of, of course, in many ways, Nazi ethics, that's my key argument here, is the most radical, or one of the most radical versions of particularist ethics, but we have it in many contexts, right? When we think of our tribe or our nation as having a different value category than somebody else, we are already moving from the universal to the particularist. Right? And it's an interesting tension because, of course, many other religious communities or whatever also need some sense of particularism to even to make sense to themselves. Right? So it's, it's, it creates all kinds of other questions, of course, in terms of how we operate our ethical systems. But regarding the Holocaust, I think what's important to take away here is um, that it's actually because in the course of the 30s and into the early 40s, Nazi Germany develops increasingly, gradually, 
a world of ethical norms that is seen as particular and only relevant for us, that Germans can perpetrate the crimes, beginning with pushing people out of their jobs, disenfranchising them, um, robbing them, deporting them, and murdering them, right? The gradual aspect. And it's path dependent. So when you've done A, it's easier and more likely that you will do B. When you have done B, it's more likely to do C, right? So it's a gradual process. A good friend of mine that I also quoted yesterday, Harald Welzer, has made a very important point. He said, if we do the unusual thing of doing counterfactual history and just kind of experiment, do a thought experiment, Let's imagine we walk into a German town in 1934-35 and tell 500 men in that town, German, non-Jewish men, by the way, we should now round up all the Jews of the, of the town, we should walk them through this town, put them on trains and deport them and they'll never come back. Most likely Germans would not have done that in 34 or 35. And that's the important part of it. They would have done other things and they did do other things. Right? But as a broad, kind of um, carried by the German population, that is not what most likely would have happened. In 41, 42, it's possible. Yes, the war plays a role, but it's much more this kind of gradual change of what is seen as right that is crucial. That's obviously also my punchline in terms of where the contemporary significance of this is. Because the punchline, if this argumentation is convincing, it means our ethical norms the way that we actually internalize them and live them um, can change. It doesn't mean that everything is relative. Actually, I would say the opposite, right? But the, the ethical system that we operate within can, under certain circumstances, change. And Nazi Germany is a case where we're beginning with the radical redefinition, redefinition of who is part of the we and who is part of the others. That's something that came up already here. Already in, let's say, April 1933, and by the decision to take that de radical definition, who is outside, and even pour it into the form of laws, and then in 35, 6, 7, 8, to have a constantly self-reinforcing practice of marginalization, where each step of robbery and marginalization and so on, again, seems to confirm the beginning, right? I marginalize the Jews and I push them out and that seems to actually pay off for me and give me more status in society and give me a better income and better position and so forth, right? So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, basically, in that process. That's that kind of gradual ethical shift that we see. We, we all know So they kept uh, very good records, okay? We know that Moshe so so in Hamburg was executed, okay? So are there records that good that we know what SS officers took my aunt's diamond bracelet? So my, my point was earlier that um, we have very detailed um, records of the property that was taken and auctioned, and obviously because it was um, illegal, the robbery that happens on this kind of everyday level ha has not been documented. And let me also say about the whole degree of how 
record-keeping the Germans were, we have to make sure to distinguish between what's our stereotype about Germans and how accurate and punctual they are, and what is the Holocaust history actually about, right? Um, there's a big difference between uh, certain phases and situations of the Holocaust where, actually, where everything was meticulously planned and recorded and we have all the documents, and then we have the chaos of random shooting and um, huge pails of blood on the street and uh, uh, people being beaten to death on the street and so on, where nothing was recorded, right, in Lithuania or other places. So we have to be careful that it's not our assumptions that uh, create the historical image, but that the Holocaust, in terms of deg the degree to which it was recorded, varies in terms of what phase and what place we're looking at. Um, as I listen to all of this, uh, I, I hear a lot about the genius of the Germans to organize and to motivate their people, uh, everything, and the Jews were Germans. Yet to me, the essential question is, what were, is Jewish survival? Jews are geniuses survival. What in the future, right now, there is anti-Semitism? Who knows what could happen? We can't avoid it. Yet, what is our defense? What should we do as Jews? That is, to me, the essential question. Yeah. What should we be doing as Jews? And that's where I want to go in a moment. So let's just put that up on the board together with the other aspects. But there are so many hands now, so I need to make sure that it's to keep on track here. Ari? We do have a bunch of rabbis in the room, so I'm not trying, I don't, I don't want to compare Holocaust but to what we have in our own Bible, but we have a few stories in our Bible where we as a people were commanded to commit genocide against other peoples, right? And if I remember correctly, God says, you shall not take their, uh, their booty. So it kind of fits within this model in a very perverse way, going back to our tradition. So A, we have it in our own tradition, and B, I'm wondering if the Germans ever referred to things like that, because there's a biblical, I mean, there are biblical stories that are very similar to this. You know, not as, doesn't build up the way you're arguing about, but it's, a, but it's about an ethical system that's specific to a time and a place. I think there's a rabbinical response here. So I will say that's, I think, right, that in the attack of the Canaanites, yeah. the rules of warfare are wipe them out, genocide, and don't take any of the booty when you do so, so that that's not your motivation. So in that sense, there are different times and places for different ethical systems. One of the things that really bothers me about that presentation of Himmler, his ethics is the ethics of self-defense. It's not murder, it's self-defense. And he has two facts, and I'd be curious as to how those two facts got um, developed as a German belief. First fact that he presents is that the Jews undermined Germany in World War I. How did he go about, and how did the Nazis go about making that claim? And the second is that the Jews are a lower moral people. How did they create that as a fact? That's what bothers me in that speech, yeah. is again, the assertion of facts. Yeah. The first part is obviously relating to, and then I think I need to move on, so because I, I realize I only have 10 minutes left and there's still some very important questions that I've announced to, to 10, 15 minutes, or, yeah. Um, the first point here is uh, 
bringing us to the key notion of the backstabbing legend that is created in 1918-1919. So the idea that we as Germans did not lose World War I uh, because of the failure of our troops in the trenches, but because um, the capitalists, who often were Jews, um, and the communists um, created such a stir and undermined the war effort, so they were stabbing our troops in, uh, in the back. So that's the idea, and one can, cannot overestimate the significance of 1918 as a notion, as an idea in Nazi ideology. That was the utmost dark moment of darkness for Nazi Germany, which they wanted to undo. They want to unravel and undo 1918 by this kind of cataclysmic uh, genocide. Right? That was the idea, basically, to, to uh, count, push back uh, against that. The idea of a, a inferior moral, um, I want very briefly to take you back to the beginnings of uh, Timothy Snyder's book from two years ago that was called Black Earth. Uh, that's the guy that I also referred to yesterday. Um, in Black Earth, he uses the first chapter to describe Hitler's worldview. And if you're up for it, it's amazing reading. Um, and to try to bring it in five sentences, Snyder shows in that chapter that Hitler was not even a nationalist and perhaps not even an, an, an anti-Semite in the ways we normally think of anti-Semites not liking Jews having so much power or whatever, right? Or old Christ killer ideas, right? From, from Middle Ages or before. He says, Hitler is driven by one notion, and that is, and that trickled into Nazi ideology in Germany. Not all of it, one to one, but parts of it. Hitler has the notion that there is a national right, good state of nature and of human beings, and that is constant war. The way that society should be is that we are at the throats of each other all the time. That brings the best results. You see the social Darwinism idea behind it. Right? So the constant clash, that is what brings the best forward. But at some point of time, something went wrong. And what went wrong was that a disturbing element came in from the side and disturbed that system. And that element has many names. Somehow, in the end of the day, it's Jewish. But it's also ethics, it's religion, it's Christianity, it's capitalism, it's communism, it doesn't matter. All of these are shades of the same phenomenon that hinder and hamper that process. And our task now as Germans is to step up to the plate and to destroy that threat to the original destiny of, of the world and of nature by destroying it. So that is why Himmler also says we are doing a favor to the world, because we are destroying that negative impact of a Christian ethics, a Jewish ethics, etc., because that is corrupting what actually should work. You see, that's completely turning things. It's, 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 it's going to make your head spin, but that is where Hitler is coming from. And that is why when you think, oh, he was nationalist, but just a little bit more than everybody else, he was anti-Semite, but just a little bit worse than everybody else, is misleading. Now, as I know there's a timeline, I somehow want to try to bring all these threats together, and very much coming back to you, uh, your question about what does that mean for how do we deal with this? We have a specific problems of today, anti-Semitism, but also other threats to um, functioning democracies that, that can somehow safeguard human rights and, and, and dignity of human beings. Um, I want to read one quote, and I'm sorry, it seems like a, a, an advertising campaign for Timothy here, but Timothy Snyder uh, phrased it this way. Um, 
It is easy to sanctify policies or identities by the death of victims. It is less appealing, but morally more urgent to understand the actions of the perpetrators. The moral danger, after all, is never that one might become a victim, but that one might become a perpetrator or, or a bystander. And that is basically what, for some of us, have led us to think, if ethics is such a fragile thing that so easily, uh, under certain historical political circumstances, can deteriorate, can erode, can be corroded, then that is where we need to go in. And we need to create an awareness that, for example, the professionals, not the top Nazi leaders like Himmler, not the people who actually do the mass shootings, but the people who organize all of this, the people who make uh, the universities run in Germany, the people who train that, the people who preach in the, in the churches. This broad spectrum of professionals have had an enormous power to make that possible, and they have an enormous power today. So let's go in there and look what kind of sense orientation of good, of right and wrong did professionals have here? How could that go wrong? What did the German professionals do to make this happen in terms of being the experts of organizing it, of driving German society forwards? And what does that mean for professionals today? So what FASB is about, um, the program that I mentioned briefly to you before, is to run um, programs that bring young graduate students in five different disciplines, journalism, law, business, medicine, and seminary, on short two-week trips to Germany and to Poland to go to the sites of the murder in, and the, of organizing it in Berlin and primarily executing it in Poland. So we go to Auschwitz at the end of the trip for a couple of days. And to use these different locations Sites matter, right? There's a, there's a power of place that makes it different where I just sit in Ossientium, where Auschwitz the camp is, and discuss these things, or whether I sit in a classroom at Yale. Right? There's, there's the, in terms of, of the power of place, it's very important. History matters because we want to show how professionals had choices and took what we today would think of the wrong choices back then, and they had power. And these ethical norms matter greatly because that is, in the end, what also makes all of these different things possible. Let me just, as a, one of the closing things probably that I can do today, um, show you a quick um, clip that tells you a little bit more about the program and then I'll also hand out some of the papers. FASPI. Fellowships at Auschwitz for the Study of Professional Ethics is a remarkable, intense two-week program that challenges professional school students to confront the ethical issues of their professions through study at notorious sites of Holocaust history. It's a question of what role the professionals played in the Holocaust and what can be derived from that for today's professionals. It's an experience that might sort of speak to what's coming from your soul rather than from your head. If one remains silent long enough, what it is that we are critical of, we now become guilty of. By examining the role that the various professions played in the calculations that led to mass murder, and in mass murder itself, we will teach our future leaders about history and personal and professional responsibility. 
these things didn't happen overnight. It didn't, it wasn't one day you were sitting at your desk and the next day you were asked to participate in mass murder. There was a process that led to that. And I think examining that process and examining the roles of the various professions um, is crucial. It is really to the everyday lapses of ethics that we are addressing this program, to contemporary issues that professionals will face immediately upon leaving graduate school. With curriculum designed in collaboration with Yale, Columbia, and Georgetown universities, FASB offers a unique opportunity for select students in law, medicine, seminary, journalism, and business professional schools to examine historical case studies and issues of contemporary ethics while studying in New York City, Germany, and Poland. In medical school, it's all about being a team player, being part of the team. There's a hierarchy. You are in, uh, you, you have to uh, listen to uh, the person directly ahead of you. Well, in Nazi Germany, that went awry, didn't it? And so much of this experience of FASB is, is visceral, and it makes it very difficult to look at things with that sort of distance. The way that we write about genocide today, the way that, the way that we write about corruption, uh, the way that we hold people accountable, these are eternal lessons. So what happened then, I think, has lessons for all time. You can walk through your life and think of yourself as good and do very terrible things. So you really have to decide at any moment when you're interacting with every patient what is good right now. It's hard to imagine the person isn't changed in some way, that the person isn't more thoughtful about certain ethical questions, that the person isn't more doubting at times of the implications of what they're of what they're doing. This will be an important reminder to them that the issues they're dealing with are not simply matters of technique, but that they are matters of character and, and commitment. FASB offers a new approach to examining professional ethics. The power of place and site-specific engagement challenge the next generation to question the consequences of their actions, to recognize their own responsibilities, to live their professional and personal lives informed by what they have studied and seen at authentic sites of this powerful history. The Fellowships at Auschwitz for the Study of Professional Ethics. So what, what I would like to wrap up, and perhaps there's still a moment for questions, um, is just to try to make one point very clear. This is not a genocide prevention program. This is not even Holocaust education per se. It's the attempt to take a confrontation of the challenge of the Holocaust and think about what that implies for a younger generation for the this century. And as I said, for Jews and non-Jews alike, for Europeans and Americans alike, right, to broaden that kind of spectrum and to say what we want to do is to encourage graduate students in these different, different disciplines that I mentioned to talk about their ethical dilemmas, their ethical challenges, whether it's end-of-life debates, whether it's business, business ethics, whether it's how I actually run my church community and the ethical quandaries that come up with that when suddenly there is a discussion about separating families at the border and what kind of what I as clergy should do about that, right? What do I do in these situations? And the idea is to discuss these contemporary ethical discussions against the backdrop of the big failure 
of the professions during the Holocaust, hoping that that uh, in the end will help to foster a deeper commitment um, to ethical practice in these different professions of, um, of these fellows. So perhaps you have another question or two, and then we probably need to wrap up in five or 10 minutes. possessions for oneself rather than for the right. Behavior seemed to have preceded talk about behavior, and there was also, but we won't talk about it. Is that just what he's saying, or is that what the development of it was? Because it, it, silence seemed to be a very high value. Uh, compliance, of course, is a very high value. The silence after the behavior uh, seemed to, as I say, precede the development. What does Himmler exactly say? He says, oh, I have all these German compatriots of mine, we all have them, who say all the Jews should be eradicated, all the Jews should be exterminated, and then he laughs it off, because in the end they all have their Jewish friend and whatever. Right? You, on the other hand, and then he looks at these more than 90 officers in front of him, you guys, you actually know what it means to have 100 or 500 or 1,000 bodies lying there. And to have stood that through, and some of you mentioned that earlier, to, to have done this dirty and difficult job, which was necessary but hard, you guys know that this is a page of honor uh, and remain decent doing it, that's of course the punchline here, is a page of honor that never will be written. Uh, and so that is this interesting thing between this, the general talk about how Jews have no existence to live and then the, the actual specific murder which will be kind of covered up. Uh, because, and that's what I said earlier, arguably, because what he pursued was an ethics that he knew the Vatican, in spite of all the anti-Semitism, wouldn't really uh, support Sweden. Other neutral countries would say, we're happy to do all kinds of things with the Germans, but that goes too far, right? So he knows this is something that feels right and is right for us, but for other people, that will be incomprehensible and abominable. Abom 